Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you happen to find yourself in the world at the moment, and welcome to the QS In Conversation podcast. I'm Anton John Crace, and I'm the editor and program designer at QS Quackerilly Simmons. This week's episode of the pod is supported by the American University of Raze Kaima. For more information, visit aurak.ac.ae. You know, the thing I'm missing most professionally this year is the in-person conference. In my previous roles, traveling from country to country, conferences were just a really great way to meet people I wouldn't normally and quickly find out about trends and news items. It was always fun to talk about a keynote with someone I just met in line for lunch and discuss which points we did or didn't agree on. Outside my professional enjoyment, however, for universities, the in-person conference has been a rich source for collaboration and partnerships. Even outside the conference hall, the ability to message someone on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm in your city, let's grab a coffee and a chat, has resulted in countless partnerships. For the time being, at least, those days are on hold and we're all going online. Well, were we already doing that? Well, this week on the pod, we're joined by, by Teklu Abate Bekela, the Associate Professor of Department of International and Comparative Education, the Graduate School of Education at the American University in Cairo. TechLoo's research into partnerships building has found that processes were already going online before lockdown. He spoke to QS about what makes a successful and meaningful partnership and the types of challenges that need to be overcome. Welcome to the show, TechLoo. Thank you very much for coming on. And thank you for having me, Anton. Uh, so we're talking today about virtual partnerships in the new world. Tell me at the moment, are there any trends that are coming up about with trying to form partnerships, uh, public-private partnerships, partnerships between institutions, etc.? I think when it comes to higher education in general, partnerships play a critical role in general. We can argue that universities by their nature are pretty much universal in a sense that they have to create very active and productive partnerships and collaborations with people and agencies and, in, and entities at the national, regional, and global level. So they've been doing this for so many centuries now. And the fact is that their first, second, and third mission, which are respectively teaching, research, and service, they also embed partnerships as part of a mechanism. And part of my study actually explored this very phenomenon that I tried to look upon how regional intergovernmental organizations in the Middle East and in Africa are actually embracing this concept, the idea of creating and sustaining partnerships. For example, I studied the African Union and the Southeast Asia Ministries of Education Organization and the Arab League Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, as well as the Southeast Asian Ministries of Education Organization. So these four intergovernmental organizations, which dedicate themselves for the development of education in their respective regions, they have partnerships as one of the critical pillars when it comes to educational development and sustainability. So at the regional level, you have this policy acknowledgement. And at the national level, we have bilateral and multilateral partnerships created by governments and et cetera, et cetera. But the most important is at the institutional level, at the level of our education institutions. My recent study explored how and to what extent 30 African universities are kind of creating partnerships and new forms of engagements with their 
communities and societies. This, is, this was kind of an extremely interesting study. And the 30 universities, they spread across 14 African countries. And the major finding is that these 30 universities are really creating new ways of engaging and linking with their own societies. Okay. So the term society is pretty much interesting too. They are not limited to their towns and their cities and their communities. They are referring to their nation, they are referring to their regions and continents, and they are making reference to the global level. So that means you have this widespread embracing of partnerships across teaching, research, and community service too. So that means, yeah, there, there is already a policy and a strategic awareness, both at the national and institutional levels when it comes to embracing partnerships and collaborations. You said uh, 30 universities across 14 countries, uh, and you said mm -hmm. they, were, they were looking at new and innovative ways to engage. Now, obviously, the study occurred before COVID-19. Can you go through some of the ways in which it's, uh, they are looking at different ways to engage and have those partnerships? So I can kind of identify two broad strategies and mechanisms which universities try to use when it comes to practicing the idea of partnerships. One, we have this approach called the traditional way of doing things. So that means it is called traditional because these partnerships and engagements and linkage with societies, they are not clearly and explicitly linked to university missions. Mm -hmm. So they are kind of projects run by individual faculty and researchers. So using their social capital, researchers and faculty, they try to reach some other universities, other organizations, and other entities which are interested in the global development of education. So it's kind of very individualistic, and it's not clearly linked to university missions. And there is no any clearly identified structure or any support system to sustain and scale up these kind of initiatives. And there, there have been kind of some reports which tend to indicate that several universities in Africa, particularly, they seem to struggle in this. But other universities, they tend to have more experience and more capabilities when it comes to playing more significant roles virtually. So you have the second approach, which I can call it a systematic or a strategic approach to creating engagements and partnerships. It's called strategic. Why? Because it is explicitly linked to their missions, the missions of teaching, research, and community service too. And you have clearly identified dedicated offices and structures which kind of initiate, scale up, and sustain this kind of partnership. So you have this as part of the organizational structure of universities. So that means more likely that these kind of initiatives are going to be scaled up and they could be sustained for the coming years as well. So you have this kind of diverse approach of getting in touch with global, regional, and national partners when it comes to education and development. This is strategic and the traditional approach. But how and to what extent these two approaches are playing out in real practice, that has to be really closely studied. 
that then that sort of hits on my next question, which was that you mentioned that there are those that are struggling, uh, but there are those that more that are a little bit more experienced and have the capabilities. Uh, I was curious with the studies that you have undertaken: uh, is there a uniform approach, or are there similarities between the pro- the approaches of those that are more experienced, or is there a diversity of those approaches in and of itself? Say, for example, one university does uh, a virtual partnership one way, and another university does that virtual partnership in a different way as well. Oh, yeah, there is a substantial difference across universities and across countries, of course. So we can say that at the policy and the strategy level, you have an amazing degree of coherence across nations and across universities. This is why, but maybe this is part, partly linked to the idea of the sustainable development goals. Yeah, you have that global expectation to create partnerships and collaborations. So that means by default, institutions are supposed to impress at least part of that policy idea. So that could contribute to the isomorphic nature of policies and strategies developed at the national and institutional level. But when it comes to practice, you observe substantial differences. For example, my university, the American University in Cairo, there are 170 active partnerships created all over the world. Of course, this is a kind of a very special university, very elitist and Western type with amazing experience internationally and globally. But other African universities, they tend to kind of follow the traditional approach. They do not have really dedicated offices to initiate and sustain partnerships of any type. So that means they entirely rely on the social capital of their researchers and their faculty. And the problem is that you have this thing called brain drain in Africa particularly. So that means people with more expertise and with more social capital, they are flocking to the Western universities. So that means they try to create new partnerships with universities elsewhere. And then after some passage of time, they themselves try to sort of migrate to other universities too. So you have this widespread intention and policy dedication for partnerships, but the capacity, the institutional capacity is not really well developed. Uh, in, in that case... Other universities, some leading universities... I Meaning, if you look at the rankings, yeah, the top mm-hmm. leading universities are playing pretty well, and they could be grouped under the strategic partnership creating universities. Well, uh, I'm sorry I interrupted just before, but uh, I'm interested. Okay. Uh, you said that there's a, a sort of gravitating towards the, the Western universities and the more prestigious, uh, quote unquote, universities. For those that uh, don't necessarily have the capacity, then are there other strategies that can be implemented to to create those? partnerships and form those partnerships and again outside of the fact that we can't sit down in a, a conference hall and, and schedule a meeting are there other approaches to doing that absolutely i think the most important strategy in here is the application of technology the good development in africa and the global south generally is that you have this increasing development of technologies so they are made more and more accessible to universities and to students and to other stakeholders. So that means they could definitely exploit the capabilities of technologies. It's pretty much user-friendly this time around to use any form of technology. And they are becoming cheaper and cheaper by the year with a little bit more of, a little bit of institutional awareness when it comes to the capabilities of technology. 
African universities and universities elsewhere in the developing world, they could definitely make significant strides on this aspect. So that means you can rely on technologies. And the most important part in here is that you need to have a dedicated system, a dedicated structure, which makes this to happen. So that means it's good to have technology leadership at the institutional level. So you have this one, yeah? Uh, creating structures and exploiting the capabilities of technologies is absolutely important. And the other part which is linked to this is university governance. Meaning in the many countries, I could say that university governance is not that transparent. There is limited degree of accountability. And if you are aspiring to create active and meaningful partnerships, you really need to have a different way of governing your university. So you need to demonstrate that you're going to be more and more transparent across the years. And then you need to demonstrate to your potential partners that you are accountable and you will be able to execute the tasks in a timely and in a collegial manner. And another part which is linked to my other research is that you have this virtual policy, yeah? You will be censored online by the security agents and political regimes of certain countries. And this is one of the biggest challenges to African researchers, actually. It's not particularly linked to creating partnerships, but it has something to do with teaching and research, too. So that means researchers and faculty in general, they do not seem to have the academic freedom to sort of come up with new ways of doing things. If you still want to keep that governance style, it's unlikely that you will be able to amass a great number of partnerships in the years to come. And of course, you have this logistical and infrastructural challenge in relation to using the capabilities of technology for creating partnerships meaning power outage is still a challenge to many African countries. In the middle of the Zoom meeting, power will go. And then you have to terminate your meetings. And the bandwidth with this is still very limited. It cannot support video and audio conferences and discussions. So these are kind of the very technical and infrastructural limitations which need to be really taken into consideration by university governors. You've hit on some very, very interesting points here. Uh, and I, I would like to try and cover them a little bit more. But I think the, the technological capabilities do you share those concerns that potentially you have capable haves and have-nots where the global north, as it were, gets a, an advantage simply because they have those technological capabilities when forming virtual mm -hmm. partnerships? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with this idea. And these terms, digital divide, is still something real. So that means, particularly in Africa, you have this technical challenge. Technologies need to be developed to their full potential. And there is no kind of inadequate, sufficient commitment by governments and by universities themselves when it comes to developing technological infrastructure at the national and institutional level. So the digital divide, yes, absolutely. It is a nightmare to many African universities. And we've been reading several articles published in the University World News. And universities, because of this pandemic, they decided to migrate to online instruction. So the management, they decided to do that. But then you have demonstrations and oppositions coming from faculty and from students too. Part of the reasons for these oppositions was definitely linked to the technological capabilities. They 
are afraid that learning and teaching and instruction in general is going to be elitist. So that means so many students who are living in rural areas do not have a predictable access to technology. And because of these oppositions, they do not make it to online successfully and peacefully. So that means when it comes to creating partnerships, this is a handicap. So that means you, if your technological capability is not developed, and if the institutions are not demonstrating that they are kind of investing a little bit more resources to develop it, and then it's unlikely that you will be able to partner with other entities. Even if you are able to initiate and create some kind of partnerships, you will be at a disadvantage because you do not have the technological capability, because you do not have the sufficient experience to sustain projects of this type. So that means you will be put at the periphery. And here comes the idea of the power imbalance when it comes to creating and sustaining partnerships. Partners who come from the North or from the West, for example, will definitely have the upper hand when it comes to identifying agendas for partnership and when it comes to articulating specific goals and purposes for partnerships. And even when it comes to managing the partnership itself. The Global South or so many universities which do not have the technological capabilities, they just simply follow the seat. At some point, you might feel that you are dominated and dictated by your partner. And that's not an indication of an effective or successful partnership, particularly at the university level. I wanted to go, I wanted to reel back to some of the stuff you said earlier. You said that you were part of four different organizations uh, within the Arab region as well as the Asia Pacific, etc. Are those mm. also, um, in terms of, so the, the, the description of this episode does talk about the days of the coffee meeting or the meeting of a coffee and the meeting of a lunch are behind us or on, on hold uh, more accurately for the time being. But do organizations such as the ones that you're involved in, are they also an important role, uh, uh, a conduit to ensure that partnerships are occurring, that, that universities and institutions should be engaging with them in a, in a more uh, proactive and meaningful way? Thank you for bringing this to the fore, Anton. This is an important point. So that My means pleasure. the fore the four intergovernmental organizations, the African Union, the Arab League, and the Southeast Asian Ministry of Education Association. So they, the basic motto and the basic kind of mandate of these organizations is to sort of develop education in their respective countries. So the aspiration is to develop their education systems and by implication to contribute to socioeconomic development and sustainability. So they are kind of intermediary organizations situated between the global, the UN system, for example, and the national, their own member countries. So they have more than 120 member countries. So they aspire to promote the development of education in their own respective regions in Africa, the Arab world, and Southeast Asia. And technology and partnerships are identified to be two of the most important strategic pillars for this organization. So that means by implication, their member countries, uh, 120 countries, are supposed to have technology and partnerships as their development initiatives. These organizations, they aspire to support their member countries when it comes to creating partnerships, sustaining them, and when it comes to further developing technology so that they will be optimally used for teaching, 
research and community service too. So this is at the policy and the strategy level, and my study focuses exactly on that. How and to what extent these policy ideals by these four organizations are practiced at the, in reality that we do not know yet. Okay, I think we're fast running out of time, um, but I think the, the, some of the interesting takeaways I've, I've, I've got from this conversation has been that ultimately um, the virtual part of, of, the, of, the, of forming partnerships in the new world are not, that's really a lot of the difference. Uh, you spoke a lot about transparency and accountability and accountability in the, in the uh, governance uh, as well as having uh, the virtual policies and the virtual censorships, which is equally true uh, of academic freedoms in in the non-virtual space. Um, are there any other are there any other things that you'd like to comment on in terms of uh, the way in which partnerships are currently being formed now that uh, as we are in lockdown? Yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> but then, yes, universities they still can do something. Yeah, so they have absolutely limited resource base and they have limited technological capabilities, and many of them do not seem to have experience when it comes to strategic partnerships. So that means they have to sort of have kind of a jump start at some point. So you can have kind of a general awareness at the institutional level, at the university level, that creating meaningful and active partnerships virtually is kind of the normal minimum now. So previously, okay, you could rely on face-to-face, the face-to-face way of doing business, but now you have this pandemic. Okay, COVID-19, it could be over anytime soon, but you might have any other form of pandemic, or you might be put in a position where your online presence is absolutely critical for your legitimacy and for your power and for your impact into the society. So in any way, virtual presence and creating virtual partnerships is going to be the normal minimum in the years ahead. Universities, they need to have a more sensitive management team, which is really overseeing projects like this. So there has to be an organizational, institutional level of awareness. The awareness that despite limited resources and the limited capability of technologies, they need to do something. And if if there is such an awareness at the institutional management level, then they can move to the very practical matters to sort of create some structures, some offices, which dedicate for the development of virtual partnership. So that means you might be able to create some awareness among faculty and researchers and staff when it comes to the significance and relevance of creating virtual partnerships. So you need to create awareness among your own community. And then could come the logical task of providing trainings, workshops, seminars about how to create, sustain, productive and mutually benefiting partnerships. So there has to be some hands-on on this too. So you could argue that faculty and the researchers attempt to be technology literate. Well, that's okay, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they will be able to optimally use technologies when it comes to creating meaningful partnerships. So that means some office, somebody, has to organize continuous training. And that has to be really aligned with faculty professional development. 
it shouldn't be considered as an extension or as an add-on to faculty job descriptions, but it has to be an embedded and imbued activity by universities and by individual faculty. So that means we need to count for professional development, inviting our faculty and researchers to get engaged virtually. Mm. So professional development, faculty promotion, and stuff like that, they have to take this into consideration too. And the last one, which I mentioned previously, is that you need to be more transparent and accountable too. So that means faculty, they are very intelligent people. So they want to be the boss for their own own. So that means as a management, you need to give an incredible amount of freedom when it comes to planning, executing, monitoring, and evaluating partnerships. So freedom is absolutely critical and the management need to take that into consideration. So these are kind of the most important points I would like to highlight in the end. When it comes to the technological capabilities, we have different forms of technologies, technologies which support video, audio, text-based communications. So that means depending on the resource base of universities, they could kind of identify the ones which appear to be affordable at this point and the ones which tend to be efficient and effective. So yeah, we need to sort of start from what we have already and try to sort of grow by numbers over the years. Absolutely. I think this has been a really interesting chat and this is a perfect uh, place to end it. So thank you very much for coming on to QSN Conversation, Techloo. Thank you very much, Anton. It's been a privilege, a privilege to have you. Hi, everybody. It's Anton here again. Thank you very much for joining me on this week's episode of QS in Conversation. I really do hope that you got a lot out of it. I found it really fascinating to find out the ways in which virtual partnerships were already being created prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, a very special thank you to the American University of Raze Kaima, uh, who supported us on this episode. Uh, and while the in-person conference experience is on hold for the time being, QS is taking its conferences online and two of our bigger, biggest ones are coming up soon. That is QS Maple and QS Apple. You can find out more information and register at qsmaple.org or qsapple.org. That is qsmaple.org and qsapple.org. Register there. Uh, and until next time, good night.